you can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life be real no you know no one's ever escaped from this podcast and only the most deranged of movie opiners reside here on be real I agree. <laughs> you could hear how deranged he was in the pause. Welcome, one and all, to your movie reviewing, reappraising, genre hopping podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network. This is Be Real. My name is Chance Solom Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. Inmates number one and two here on the latest iteration of the show where we're talking about Alcatraz movies uh, in honor of The Rock's. 25th anniversary seems like just yesterday um i was watching it on tnt yeah it's a it's one that really i feel like pervaded at least your reference points in terms of movie jokes it's so weird that you're coming out with that because i do feel like this is i don't mean it in a derogatory movie i think it's more of a you movie i've really only seen this movie like once or twice before all right. See, I, it's so weird. We thought of it as each other's film. That's, yeah, that is odd. Well, that's nice. There's something touching about that. Um, we're thrilled, as always, to be here on the Playlist Podcast Network, where you can find shows like the Playlist Podcast, Fourth Wall, Deep Focus Podcast. Please uh, take a second and give us a rating. If you never have, a high rating is always preferred. Just be honest. Least. And a nice, a high rating is always preferred <laughs> in a comment if you so choose. Thanks for listening and supporting the network, everyone. Um, so, because of The Rock's 25th anniversary, we thought that this could be a good opportunity um, to squeeze into the action cinema niche that is Alcatraz movies. It's a niche within the prison break niche, or at least the prison movie niche. I don't think there's any breaking in Birdman of Alcatraz from 62. There's a lot of breaking in Escape from Alcatraz 79. Uh, and then Noah, you ever heard of a movie where they break into prison in 1996, The Rock? Yeah, the movie where they just bring in a bunch of animals. What does Alcatraz hold any particular place in your imagination? I went to the like Eastern State Penitentiary once, which is like kind of the same milieu of like East Coast, rather though like scary prisons. So is it on an I island? don't know. I, I forget the the details of it. You're just saying that one time you toured a prison. I, I you asked me like what my personal connection was, and I have to dig somewhat deep in terms of okay, you know as. You know, probably, Chance, and listeners of the show, I hold no affection for San Francisco. So I, I just haven't done oh, a lot of yeah. touristy. <laughs> I haven't done a lot of touristy things there. I love that. Yeah, longtime listeners of it, the show, uh, not counting myself, apparently, will remember that it throws off your internal gyroscope and you just don't like it. Exactly. So <laughs> if anything, I can feel for these Alcatraz people. Nice. Um, no, that's a terrible. What, what amazing empathy you're capable of because of how persnickety you are about your gyroscope. 
<laughs> Nobody wants to feel unbalanced. No. Heavens no. Um, let me toss out my Alcatraz theory here and why there are at least um, three major American movies about it. Um, so there are... One of the weird things about it is that it was only a federal prison for 30 years, which I would say from the place it occupies in people's imaginations is a, is completely outsized for how long it was actually a federal penitentiary. I was, I was doing some weird Googling um, other sort of, let's call them name brand American prisons like Huntsville, Leavenworth, Attica, Joliet. These places have been open a hundred, a hundred and fifty years, but they, you know, nobody wants to make movies about them um, because they're just these sort of like, you know, factories of retributive, like human misery. Um, and Alcatraz, I think, you know, this is not the case for how people were actually treated there and how it was run, but it seems so innocent by comparison because it seems like something from Greek mythology. It seems like something that like was invented for like to punish Hercules. It's like, oh yeah, we put a big rock in the middle of the ocean where only the real, real baddies go. Um, and there's something kind of childlike about that jumping off of like, you know, Count of Monte Cristo or something. And of course, the other thing that that does, that kind of mythological overtone, is it invites you to think about the prison almost entirely in terms of escape. It feels like a dare. Um, and in turn, like all of these convicts um, from uh, Mason, that's Connery in 96, who's, who's invented, to Frank Morris, to Robert Stroud, they're all kind of built up in this, this legendary way that befits the, the legendary island. Birdman of Alcatraz. A strange name for a motion picture? Perhaps. But it's the story of one of the strangest men who ever lived. A real story. A real man. A man who is living today. Robert Stroud. American. A convict. Yet, in his achievement, in his fierce independence, he reflects the ideals of the country whose laws he shattered. You know, I think I've got you figured out, Shoemaker. First day I came here, you as much as asked me to get down on my knees and whimper. I wouldn't do it then, I won't do it now. I won't lick your hand, and that's what eats you, ain't it, Keeper? Well, you keep this in mind. A man ain't whipped until he quits, and I'll never give you that pleasure. Noah, do you want to start in 1962? With Birdman? Yeah, the Birdman of Alcatraz. From the director of Reindeer Games. Comes. That is not John Frankenheimer's <laughs> most famous movie. <laughs> it's the same year as Manchurian Candidate, for God's sake. From the director of Manchurian Candidate and Reindeer Games. And the island of Dr. Moreau. <laughs> <laughs> we need to watch that at some point. We should. Birdman of Alcatraz, 1962. A surly convicted murderer held in permanent isolation redeems himself when he becomes a renowned bird expert. Incredible. I love a synopsis that's like, that was pretty prescriptive. He redeems himself, audience. Do not ask any questions about that. No. Um, did you th Did this movie make you do any research on the actual Stroud? Just a bit. 
seems like that guy maybe was not as charming as Burt Lancaster IRL. No, because every inmate who like he interacted with went on later to be like, he was mean, manipulative, like right. psychopath. He was a motherfucker. Yeah, he may have been more of like a Hannibal Lecter and less of like a accidentally killed two guys because they insulted mother Burt Lancaster. Right. Well, it's just, I feel like it's interesting to talk about and I'm happy to talk about it, but you can also just tell from the casting and the kind of performances that Burt Lancaster always gave that like this movie is not concerned with like an even-handed kind of portrayal of this guy. One of the, I'll, I'll jump to it right now. I really think that one of the things that helps make this movie watchable is that Burt Lancaster is just a very comforting performer. Like almost everything he says in the last like 90 minutes of this movie, like exudes a kind of warmth, which is not, I don't know. It's what you want from your movie stars, but uh, it's not as common of a skill or an ethos as, as maybe we would think. Oh yeah. Moonlight Graham's about to bust out that baseball monologue at any moment. Exactly. And how, how old do you think Burt Lancaster was when this movie came out? Every movie that Burt Bert Lancaster was in, in my mind, he's 65 years old. Okay, but how old do you think he actually was? I don't know. I'm going to say something hor- horrific, like 35. He's 49. He looks amazing for 49. Well, the makeup um, in this movie, and also because it's in black and white, like they really do have fun aging these people up. Uh, yeah. You know, I would say to the uh, Thelma Ritter as his mother who's only parenthetically 12 years older than Burt Lancaster. Hmm. Um, yeah, she really goes from the prime of her life to, man, I wish my son would just stop murdering people. <laughs> so yeah, Stroud is uh, in the film and in real life. is a He's doing a... Well, he was going to be executed. He was going to be hung. Um, but then that sentence was commuted to, to life. Um, cause he had killed a man in Alaska, um, in some sort of scrap. And then he stabs a prison guard to death, which, um, I gotta say as the movie keeps concerning itself with his parole chances, I'm like, guys, you don't kill a prison guard and get paroled Birdman of Alcatraz. No, and it, it, it hints at a, a deeper darkness that maybe all this bird therapy like is not necessarily going to heal, despite the work that Elmer Bernstein is doing with the soundtrack in the back half, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is to say the second hour and a half. Right. <laughs> it's a cool 2.30. Um, do you want to make fun of it for not being set at Alcatraz, or would you like me to do that? Well, I, I mean, I got this panicked text message from you the other night <laughs> well, where you were you like... panicked when you got it. Well, yeah. You're like, joke's on us. Birdman of Alcatraz actually said at Leavenworth. Yeah. It's in the rich history of uh, Kansas prison movies. Um, does not how make dare it to they, Alcatraz until How dare they name this whole story that? Right. It just has a great ring to it. Well, that's one of the things about Stroud that you get a sense of from the movie is that he became kind of an expert in publicity um, with his 
starting this company of like bird tonics to cure fevers and, uh, you know, either using or partnering with his mom and his wife um, to get certain prison privileges to not be executed. Um, And Birdman of Alcatraz just continues to be like a phrase that I think sticks in people's heads, despite the fact that like, yeah, it doesn't take that much cleverness on every Wikipedia article related to this guy is just like, he actually wasn't allowed to keep birds at Alcatraz, but the name stuck. Yes. It's interesting too, to like think about this story. And I think you make an interesting point there that he's like what he's able to do in prison and kind of his story. But I also think he becomes like a very good, I don't know. He kind of shifts the crime from murder to con man essentially, because Mm -hmm. you have, he like figures out how to do like the American, you know, thing. It didn't have to be that he has these birds. He could have, thought up OxyClean or something, but just enough to get a little bit of notoriety that he ends up with his name in the newspaper. And then it's not even what he's doing that gets him the real fame. It's like his scandalous marriage to this person from the outside that like breaks one of the internal rules that really Mm. like gets him to the front page. So if anything, he like becomes this huckster selling bird stuff you know, it's it's more of a kind of rise and fall America story than it is related to these other two movies, I would say. Maybe. I I think Birdman of Alcatraz is pretty solidly in the like it's like an issues movie. You know, it comes out of like that Stanley Kramer school of like think about how much of this movie is discursive about the meaning of what it is to be a prisoner and whether you know the difference between rehabilitation and retributive justice the difference between individuality and uh trying to pay the piper as the, the discussion that's constantly had with carl malden who plays his longtime warden who keeps popping up after he goes and works for the bureau of prisons in dc i wonder if they really were buddies like it's kind of like leo and no, tom vibes there's absolutely no way like, that's Bob, true what's up you're here like, how are you? I, it is yeah. great to see you, inmate that I overlapped with 17 years earlier. Oh, my God. Um, and, yeah, I think you also have the issue of, like, you can call him a huckster, but there's also the thing of, like, the prison is trying to being like, you can run the business if you put this amount of profits in the pension. You're also kind of seeing the birth of, like, these work programs or is, is the germination of for-profit uh, imprisonment in the U.S. and and things like that. So um, I don't know how well like explicit issues movies kind of like lionizing a martyr age, though. Well, that's the thing. I think it's taking too seriously a movie it believes to be like an issues-driven. You know, this kind of feels you know, in retrospect, like it is a a Hollywood reach for like, but guys, like this movie is about something. When really, I think it's using a formula that is much more sort of subversive in that here's this capitalist who like just figures out to like get some shits and giggles on the way through a life sentence in prison. Hmm. So you don't think that... Birds 
laid a tender feather upon his soul and changed He's not him. even that nice to those birds. He's like, fly. What do you mean? Like, what are you, a coward? Like, fly out of that window, bird. You know. It is very funny in the early stages of bird collecting how everyone, including the prison guards, like, your, your bird? Your bird's a bitch. And <laughs> Tilly Savalas <laughs> is like, you're turning my birds into yellow birds. Incredible. You're coddling them. I don't think that's actually a line, but that's but definitely... But I mean, the- this movie, it sort of lacks the knowing that in 30 years, 20 years, 15 years, that like a montage can suffice in a lot of these. You know, like I wanted the, you know, like the suddenly I see, like to go on while he's like building the bird cages. I You know, have his little it- Devil Wears Prada, like a uh, come to Jesus moment. That's kind of in there, though. I it mean, is. it's just all no, the scenes after is. that. There's like, there's like this high ho sailor music where like all of the, all of the <laughs> inmates like order birds, and they're like, everything was good for the men and the birds, and then they're like, and then all the people are like, I don't, actually, I'll just give my birds to Bob. I don't care. Yeah, what if you um, hold on to this bird for like a year? But then I definitely want it back. Right. I. This might be the most childish thing I've ever said on the show but um i i think the fact that they like have real birds and spend time with the damn chickadees the real birds like it kind of changes the complexion of the movie in a way that i actually liked like bert lancaster you know i feel like you can see his like nervous system rewiring a little bit because he has to literally pick up canaries um and there is like a softness there in his body language that I actually think testifies to what the movie's trying to say about Robert Stroud way more than any of the dialogue does, which is the dialogue is largely very silly and the character development of him into just becoming like a, you know what, prison guard, you are a good guy. And for the, uh, thank you. Thanks for your apple crate. Like that stuff is, it's such Hollywood easy nonsense. I like the Absolutely. birds. Yeah, no, there's a lot of good bird acting in it. You know, this movie made today, there would be no bird acting. It'd be no. a computer bird. And that would be a disillusion. That would be, yeah, be disappointing. What do we uh, think of, sorry. What do we think of what? I was going to ask what you thought of Betty Field as Stella Johnson, replacement mom. Um, I didn't totally understand well maybe this goes to what you were saying like i think the relationships with the mother and the like sudden like marriage of convenience business partner wife stella hints at like a much at the dark that's side what of i'm saying yeah, okay. <laughs> that's what i'm weird. saying the plot of this movie is a guy pulling one con and then flipping it to a totally different con okay using similar pieces and similar qualities about himself but like there's not that this movie could be in a much darker key about how this man like took advantage of his poor mother and this lonely, lonely woman living in, in Indiana who wanted to like whose bird got fixed by his like snake oil. Yeah. Cause that's the thing. Was this guy like a genius? I mean, there's that scene where their doctor's like, listen, warden, he's a genius. And it's like, no, like it, Really, is he that? Like, do we still talk about this guy's science? Um, I don't know if we still. Or is talk he like the my him. pillow guy of, <laughs> you know, the nineteen fifties? 
I don't know if decent he's product, questionable politics. Still discussed in zoology classes today to try to answer your question. But I, I think if you, I think people were like his scholarship ornithologists were like his scholarship is pretty right. amazing. It seemed like he just time. like oxidized like some sprite and then like beakered it into their mouths. I laughed really hard when the narrator says, and he dosed his birds. He dosed his birds. Yeah. I love, f- how about this narrator though? The framing <laughs> of this movie is so irritatingly similar to like that of the 10 commandments because yeah. you have the guy break the fourth wall in the prologue where it's like, that over there, that's Alcatraz. That's where our movie centers. Let it's me tell to, you about Bob Strode. It's supposed to be Tom Gaddis who wrote the 1955 book about him that kind of, again, a very shrewd use of publicity and journalism. Um, and I mean, a good story, an interesting right. an interesting character, but like the movie's just not that interested. But yeah, and that's all you have, also how you know it's an issues movie. You can feel it like, content trying to contend for oscars which it did where it's like i'm this author and uh, right over here is alcatraz over my shoulder very very funny that the narrator calls his mother mother like, <laughs> and then he wrote to mother it's like well, okay there is, that's a little familiar there's something biblical about the way he d- talks about like he experimented with that microscope for 40 days and 40 nights and when he was done the birds they lived that's right it's a little there's something between subversive and a little bit of like american guy can do no wrong you know propaganda to this movie I will say I really like Telly Savalas in this movie. There are ways Carl Malden's pretty good too. Um, there are ways in which I think it is credibly epic. Like when, because Telly Savalas plays Vito, his his uh, next door neighbor at Leavenworth, who gives him a canary, and they they you know talk through how this hobby is developing and they meet up later at Alcatraz and I think Telly Telly was Oscar nominated for this um and his performance is kind of unhinged in a pretty interesting way like you always feel like he's about to actually maybe confess the sort of violent crime they did and when they meet up at Alcatraz all those years later and Telly's in a sort of influential role as the the food guy in a silent block I think it it does have the good epic bones of like, okay, time has passed. This has changed. Here's a guy who's actually expressing how he's come to relate to this system differently um, to his own benefit or just because he's been broken in a way that Robert didn't want to be broken. Um, you know, that's epic Hollywood silly filmmaking at its best. I like that. Fun cameo, Uncle Leo, Len Lesser from Seinfeld as one of the insiders of the prison riot. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Hello! (laughs) That's how you can tell it's him. He has a machine gun and he's just like, hello! Oh my God. Um, Okay. Should we tell people how to rate movies on Be Real and then rate The Birdman of Alcatraz? On Be Real, we rate movies in two categories, good or bad for technical quality, and a good or bad for watchability. So what are the four possible ratings? I don't care! 
Good, good movies are both well-made and highly entertaining. The Fugitive, Parasite, Rear Window, or The Hunt for Red October. Once more, we play our dangerous game. Good bad movies are often impressive technically, but also tough sits. Historical melodramas like The Mission, horror movies too scary or gross to rewatch, or self serious musicals like Yentl. Papa, can you hear me? Conversely, bad good movies are highly flawed but still gratifying. Nonsensical hangouts like Hot Tub Time Machine or ludicrously fun action fare like Twister or Stargate. Give my regards to King Todd, asshole. Bad, bad movies are neither well-made nor entertaining. Examples we've covered, unfortunately, include Garden State, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Attack of the Clones. I'm deeply sorry, Master. Got all that? Time for a rating. After careful consideration, I think it's probably quintessential good-bad. Uh, yep. It's, it's very long. It's a little dated. It's definitely dated in... It's portrayal of like how you grumpy, build a character. <laughs> yeah. How you build a character and like these sort of like grumpy white guys who are great men kind of narrative. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's a well-made movie. Uh, it's the, some of the cinematography is pretty incredible. Uh, and the story behind this film where Frankenheimer and the new and the actual uh, director of photography, like were second choices and came on like a week into production. So there really was no time to like develop a visual palette here, but still they found something super iconic using the black and white to their benefit. Um, But yeah, it's a, it's a classic movie. You know, you reminded me of, well, actually one of the, there aren't a ton of, noticeable visual choices i mean it's mostly shot like pretty close up in a studio from what i can tell but um there is a thing where uh, after his mom leaves him and he's denied parole and he and stroud gets drunk on the alcohol he's using to make his serums that it starts into these dutch tilts really hard um and that same goes for when he's transported to alcatraz you know right. there becomes like a seasickness a sense of lost and forgotten time to the whole movie that's kind of ever so slightly laid out in the visuals, even when they're like climbing the steps up to D block, it's like, where are we going and how long has it been? That's a, it's a smart choice. Um, Right. And even in the, even in the riot scene, like the camera seems at some points to be like concussed from where it is to some other like sharper angle that you're like not used to seeing in a movie from the 1960s, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a pretty interesting thing. And, and taking into account that all like the smoke and the broken glass and everything was all practically done, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, Burnett Guffey, we should give him his credit. He's the cinematographer. He That's right. Was the, was the uh, DP on Bonnie and Clyde and From Here to Eternity. Wow. Um, so there you go. Uh, yes, this is, it's a classic, good, bad. It feels like a, you know what it feels like? It feels like a Roland Jaffa movie 20 years before Roland Jaffa. It's like, I have the very best intentions here and I'm not afraid of melodrama. Like, let's go. And those movies are just don't age all that well, even if you appreciate the craft and the acting, which I do. Yeah. It'll definitely inspire Frank Darabont and Stephen King in a few years to be like, but what if they all were decent people? Yeah. You want to go to 79 and escape from Alcatraz? Alcatraz is the most secure prison of its time. It is believed that no one can ever escape from it until three daring men make a possible successful attempt at escaping from one of the most infamous prisons in the world. (laughs) That's too much. (laughs) 
This was the worst. This is one of the hardest, uh, most infamous synopses on IMDb. Almost impossible to get out from. Right. Oh, my God. Um, Clint Eastwood is our star. Don Siegel is our director working. It's the, the fifth and final of their collaborations. They got into a... A real big dispute about whose company was going to produce this and what studio they would go to, and it it ended a relationship that had uh, spanned uh, a decade. Movies like Coogan's Bluff, Two Meals for Sister Sarah, The Beguiled, and Dirty Harry. Um, yeah, Clinton seventy nine. Maybe we could start. He he looks great. I this oh. this is like a great Clint vintage. Yes. What I love about a movie from 1979 is that, like, in the opening shot, Clint Eastwood's hat can just fly off into the sea. And they don't call cut. They just keep going. I love that. Like, you know that there's, like, a gritty kind of anything can happen. It's, like, I think this interesting mixture of, like, the production value at that time mixed with the ability to do anything on a narrative level. Like, this is not a, a superhero Marvel movie. Like... It, it takes a minute to figure out even what this movie looks like and who is this guy. And you kind of just, to your point, you kind of just have to believe that it's Clint Eastwood and whatever brought him there was fine. <laughs> yeah, you don't really learn anything about Frank Morris other than he's Clint Eastwood. And he can say, basically say, fuck you to any authority figure in the movie without saying it. He just says it with the, the squints and the exhalations. Alcatraz, The Rock. No one has ever escaped from this prison. This is Frank Morris. Armed robbery, burglary, grand larceny. Morris has escaped from many prisons, but Alcatraz could be the exception. I smell something burning. Hmm? I'm looking for a new punk. Good luck. You don't understand. I just found her. I guess anything you want bad enough is worth the chance. Including busting out. Some men are destined never to leave Alcatraz. Alive. This island is solid rock. No one's ever busted out. No one's ever made it. Since I've been warden, a few people have tried to escape. Uh, Most of them have been recaptured. Those that haven't have been killed. I may have found a way out of here. No one has ever escaped from Alcatraz. I'm in. Me too. And no one ever will. Well... And Paul, I love Paul Benjamin. Remember he played um, Hoodie Ledbetter's dad in the great yes. Lead Belly movie we watched? I mean, he's great in Across 110th Street. He's got this uh, the bit part in Do the Right Thing where he's sitting on the corner with uh, with Frankie Faison, I think it is. Um, and he's great in this movie because he's the only one who's even less flappable than Frank. Right. Um, and they well, he's somehow... The, he's the king of the mountain. They have this chemistry of like, who can pause longer and say less? Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a great competition. Right. Um, I want to come back to what you were saying about um, Don Siegel's filmmaking, because yes, it's amazing that he sneaks in these moments of like 
very realistic, precarious grit while also having um, a great sense of visual storytelling control. Like when Clint, every one of these movies has the the long cell block walk of the person getting to Alcatraz, but none better than Clint, stark naked, um, in perfect shadow, everything right. but the swinging dick. Um, you know it's swinging though. You do. Nobody's it's, saying anything. It's heavily implied. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's an amazing shot, and I think that I think that Siegel actually has more control over how he wants to tell this story than I even realized until the breakout was actually happening. Yes. Yeah. Now this movie definitely visually knows what it's trying to do. It's having a ton of fun with shadows. You know, and it's also really good at giving you the sense that the shadows these men live in is part of the advantage they have over the guards. Like the the inability mm. to light this place because there is no natural lighting. There's no window out into the, you know, seeing San Francisco. It's just wall, 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 and then internal door, which is the way that they're like – so ultimately what happens is they they – figure out that the actual problem of Alcatraz was that it was built improperly and the concrete is like hardening and crumbling. So they figure out that they can poke their way out if they like dig around the grates and things. Uh, And that's done so well because like you see them cleaning and maintaining this building, but just not discovering the forest for the trees because it's just so finster like in the, in the cell block. I love that point. Yeah. It's, it's really cool that they're like, you know, the warden, like I was saying, the front, everybody in every one of these movies gives the like, did you know you're at Alcatraz, son? Like, that means you're fucked. Nobody's nobody's ever gotten out of here. You're the worst of the worst. And um, it's usually the wardens who are giving the speech. And uh, how great that the impregnable fortress is like in your want to make it so impregnable. You like, you didn't think about salt there, chief, and I'm going to get out. Right. And you have to love, I mean, you brought up the warden. You have to love Patrick McGowan, who is also Looks famously. So much like the, Mitch McConnell. He does. A, a, yes, he is absolutely a Mitch McConnell. And then, of course, he's uh, King Richard from Braveheart. Oh, yeah. He's mm. wearing a prosthetic nose. Good call. And he is the cruel son of a bitch. He is here, too. He is, yeah, unambiguously awful in this movie. And I kind of like that for movies like this. Like, I think because the institution itself is so black and white, you, like, have to draw those, you know, uh, Stanford prison experiment kind of lines in the sand where it's like, Mm -hmm. these are the guards and these are the inmates, and they are two teams and they're facing each other in these little skirmishes. You know, whether it's this movie, Shawshank Redemption, whatever, um, Night of even, uh, but like really kind of establishing those those boundaries and those identities and those teams. Uh, this movie, whereas Birdman of Alcatraz was just like, oh, everybody's got a tough home life. Uh, this one... It's just like no guards are guards are evil uh, inmates. Whatever they did, they're the heroes here. Yeah, I mean the the warden's more evil than the guards. But what are the guards going to do? Not follow the warden's orders? They're going to take away Doc's paintings, which is the only thing he has to live for. Robert's Blossom, famous as Old Man Marley from Home Alone, is, he turns uh, the bodies into mummies. 
That's why he's uh, been. That's why he's in jail. Uh huh. Um, he's a great presence in this movie. I really like the. I'll I'll get to my quibble in a second, but there is this at the end of the first act when it's kind of like Clint and Robert's Blossom and uh, and Charlie Butts who's just gotten there and English. It's like look at this kind of like fun non pretty like ostensibly non-violent old man team they've all formed in the yes yard. like i like this yeah it's, it's like a, a movie weird zach that braff would address would direct or something <laughs> going in style reference um it's a little weird that those are not any of the people who break out <laughs> yes that's what i was gonna bring up too it's like where i think this movie's like a little tone deaf both like in its 2020 politics, 2021 politics and its uh, like narrative ingenuity is that, yeah, it introduces you to the four guys who are presumably going to escape. And then like half an hour through the end, there's like, oh, here's Fred Ward and his brother. You know, they're the ones who are going to break out. And it's like, why? Like, why not get these guys out? Like, and then you have almost more drama because, and, and I understand this is based on a true story, right? Right, right. But, like, there's more drama of, like, will these, you know, maybe not prime of their live guys, like, make it out? Like, it's more interesting seeing Litmus, like, try to go through the little grade or whatever. I think this is a, cl- is a classic example um, of why, you know, this idea of, of adhering to nonfiction kind of, you know, comes in and out of style in terms of how we talk about Hollywood movies. But this is a classic example of why you don't do it. Because... You know, they, I'm sure they looked at the at the book by J. Campbell Bruce, and they were like, "Well, we should have these guys who really broke out and may or may not have lived." Come but into why not the then start the movie with them, with the brothers already right. there? Yeah, you either fictionalize them or make it some of the people he's already met. What are we doing? Okay, so this is like the I think the the movie's biggest weakness ends up kind of fueling its biggest strength if i can kind of push toward the end which is like i don't know anything about frank morris you never really do other than he looks and sounds and behaves like clint eastwood i don't know these (laughs) other guys who break out with him i don't know anything about them um and so i'm kind of getting toward the end here and like it's frustrating me a little bit i feel like roger ebert on a sensitive day i'm like where's my character development but then when the actual breakout happens, what I realize when the floodlights get to flooding and the waves get to crashing is, and they're really struggling each, you know, one, two, three over this wall and one, two, three down this pole is like, I don't actually have any idea if they're going to make it. And I also realize that the movie has not moralized in a way that implies whether they will make it or not either. And that was suddenly like really exhilarating. Yeah, the last half hour of this movie is just an episode of American Ninja Warrior. And you, like, don't know if they're going to get caught or fall into the water or whatever. Uh, Get impaled on Mamadoriyama. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Johnny Mosley is going to lose his shit if Clint Eastwood falls into that uh, whatever. Anyway, yeah, but I I agree with you. There's not, like, a ton leading up to it. And, like, I think it plays its hand a little too much with... Uh, the downfall of old man Marley when they take away his paints. Like that's giving the movie maybe kind you of think, an unearned. You think he played his hand a little too much? <laughs> Very good. 
very good chance. Uh, but then I think it's hard to ignore how good the last act of this movie is of them physically escaping. Like Chance said, like there's, it's given you no indication that this movie could be like a gritty fucking seventies right. movie where they all get shot in the yard at the end. I, you know, I'd really like to watch this movie again. I think, um, I think sometimes when a movie is so devoted to process, but I don't realize it on first work I, or on first watch, I, it's almost like, oh shit, have I even been watching this movie the right way, the quote unquote right way, you know, to appreciate it as much as people apparently do. So I was like a little lukewarm on it and then I got a lot higher on it at the end. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was kind of my journey. So it sounds like you're going to agree with me that this is a uh, good good. I am going to. His name is John Mason, British national incarcerated on Alcatraz in 1962, escaped in 63. There's no identity in the United States or Great Britain. He does not exist. Secrets have a way of coming back to haunt you. There's a hostage situation on Alcatraz. Hostage, 81 tourist. The rock's a tourist attraction. The one you train to defend you becomes your greatest threat. A battery of VX gas rockets is presently deployed to deliver a highly lethal strike on the population of the San Francisco Bay Area. And the one you abandon becomes your only hope. You go talk to him. Me? Yeah. Hiya. I'm an agent with the uh, FBI. I'm Stanley Goodsby. But of course you are. At least he got his name right. Now, all that stands between a city and a disaster... The power of this chemical is way beyond anything you can imagine. That's where you're coming with us. ...is a man who's never seen combat. You're a chemical freak. <laughs> I'm a chemical super freak, actually. And another who's been out of action for 30 years. Show us on the blueprints. I can't. My blueprint was in my head. Fortunately, some things you never forget. But don't worry, it'll all come back to me. The Rock, 1996, a mild-mannered chemist. Hey, now. <laughs> We're already... We are already starting off in questionable territory uh, by calling him mild-mannered. A mild-mannered chemist and an ex-con must lead the counter-strike when a rogue group of military men, led by a renegade general, threaten a nerve gas attack from Alcatraz against San Francisco. Well, when you put it like that, it sounds ridiculous. One of the best things about this movie is that it is patently ridiculous, though. Yeah. This is, of course, Michael Bay. Mm-hmm. His second movie, right? Right after Bad Boys 1. Oh, my God. And he's just going for it. This is his... Oh, yeah. He's now fully arrived. He's fully arrived, and he has the money to do it, and sometimes they're just going to race a Ferrari against a Humvee. <laughs> yeah, and they're going to make $335 million. So James Bond himself, Sean Connery, who shows up much later in this movie than I thought he would. 29 um, minutes. I, I had to check that myself when I'm like, where is Connery? What is going he, on? He says the title. Where is he? Um, and then, of course, so most of the movies with, with Nicolas Cage and then the cast of characters with the various titles that you need to know as the levers of government uh, and the FBI or whatever. Mm-hmm. 
and then, of course, the evil aforementioned general is perpetual 50-year-old man, Ed Harris. But is he evil or is he righteous, Noah? I would love to get into this with you. All right, Just the, the, the moral question here. So essentially, you are led to believe by a pretty obtuse, uh, obscure title card intro where this general was a they were sent on a mission that like didn't go very well and oh, a bunch yeah. of his guys got killed and he then testifies storm like this weird black ops. but he was off books he was like black ops right. like it wasn't so his issue was not only that his guys got killed but they like didn't pay out the life insurance like owed to them to their families because it was so off the books that they're like not officially whatever. Right. They're not officially KIA as military guys. And he's, he pulls the levers he can. He like testifies in front of a congressional committee of some kind, you know, arguing the grave injustice that has occurred, but it falls on deaf ears. So plan B is to steal a bunch of like mall kiosk art that is filled with nerve gas. <laughs> yeah, those pearl, those, those strings pearl, of pearls. Yeah, the the pearl things that you know teenage girls used to hang from their doors, uh, filled with nerve gas that could kill a lot of people, and they haven't figured out how to get rid of it. At one point, Nicolas Cage is just like, "Oh, it's something we could, we wish we could uninvent." Mm-hmm. But yeah. So then, of course, now let me ask you that we can get back to the morality of like, was that his only recourse? Because like, I think we can spoil this old ass movie and say that it was essentially a bluff. He just stole it to bluff to get the attention of the U.S. government and then intended, I think, to sacrifice himself uh, at the end anyway. Yeah, maybe. Interesting. Yeah, we'll have to get into it. I I do want to say you jumped over what I had also forgotten about. Feels like got to be in contention for studio note of the 90s, which is in the <laughs> montage at the beginning. Do you think it was Bruckheimer or Simpson who was like, hmm, maybe we show that he's at the end of a rope because his wife just died? <laughs> Oh yes, I love when he's like it's it's like clearly like rain machine rain, just like oh my God. set to a nine, and yeah. he's just like standing at the the tomb of his. Uh, let me, <clears throat> he's standing at the gravestone of his wife, and it's it's incredible. Tomb uh, of the known wife. Tomb um, of the known wife. That's very good. Um, but yeah, doesn't that like they must have focus grouped it, and they were like, okay. So scale of one to ten, what did you think of Hummel, random people? And they were like, eh, like a three for evil? And they're like, no, we need it at a five. Give him a dead wife. Yes. Well, how justified are his actions? We're only at a three. We need like a six. Yes. By exactly. the end of this movie, let's give say. him a dead wife. Yeah. Let's have him lamenting. Yeah. It's incredible that he didn't have like a son who was killed in battle, like at the actual thing. Yeah. Wow. Well. These Marines are all his sons, as he essentially implies. Some, yes. I don't know how many times he calls them some of the best men he's ever known. And that includes John C. McGinley. Incredible role. Uh, my great. personal favorite second-in-command of any <laughs> any Army, Navy, whatever, police group, uh, David Morse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he could be the sous chef at a TGI yeah, he's Friday's. The, the sous chef of any procedural film, yeah. David Morse. Uh, 
That was Major Tom Baxter. Incredible. Yeah, I, you can, couldn't believe – you couldn't convince me that his name isn't Major Tom Baxter in every single role he's ever played. Is Morse conflicted? Oh, my God. <laughs> is he ever? They just cast him to be – this like very kind of conservative, like knowing guy who like has these like rock hard morals and then something causes him to no longer believe. And mm-hmm. like a child just sort of like coming of age, this middle-aged man is like, what do I believe? Right. And ultimately makes the choice upon which the climax of the film is hung. God, we, get, we have so much to talk about. Do you want to start with Connery, Cage, Harris, Bay? You want to start with Alcatraz? Why don't we start with Alcatraz? I love that consistently through all three of these movies, the mechanism to open the Alcatraz door is consistent. You know, otherwise, I wouldn't believe that all these movies are at Alcatraz. <laughs> um, yeah. I wonder if that's like an homage to the Clint Eastwood. It must be, right? Yeah. The, that, like, goofy-looking pull-lever thing that, like, right. even in Birdman, he's like, whoa, holding the lever. When this is, where I, th- this is where I think... Okay. This is... <laughs> that impression is, like, too spot-on and therefore very grating. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is where you see Alcatraz, I think, going back to what I was saying at the beginning, become, like, a fully imaginary, like play thing for this generation of directors right like you get the sense that um i know that michael bay didn't write the script it was written by like seven people and there was a whole credit battle and you can kind of feel that it's actually amazing the movie turned out as well as it did given that that's true um but yeah you can just feel like all these people who watched like escape from alcatraz when they were kids were like you know if i ever write an action movie like we got to involve alcatraz somehow like maybe a hijacking Maybe a, you know, James Bond at age sixty five has to break back in. Oh my Who god! Who knows? But yeah, you're my, you're pretty you're out of the realm of reality completely. For sure. My favorite thing about the the, uh, the script level is the use of the uh, Chekhov's adrenaline shot, where oh, we're yeah. introduced to the adrenaline shot when he's like when Nicolas Cage is almost blown up in the in the prologue when this mysterious teddy bear or doll like comes into them. Oh, it's yeah. a bomb, whatever. But they're like, before the virus eats you, like, make sure you take that adrenaline shot. And plunge he's like, it into your heart. Plunge it into your fucking heart. Which leads me, though, to maybe my largest issue with the movie, which is at the climax when he does inject the adrenaline into himself. Can I guess what you're going to say? Yeah, sure. That the needle's way too low? It's abdomen at best. <laughs> It's not where your fucking heart is. Well, I, you know, when this thing's first, coming out of his belly button. When it first came up, I was like, I don't know if I could hit my heart if you made me stab a needle into myself, but like, it's definitely four and a half inches higher than that. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. And it, it kind of moves around from shot to shot. It kind of varies between like four to six inches, but. None of them are even in the ballpark of where a human heart exists. 
Some great act acting from Cage though at the end when he does the the Willem Dafoe platoon crucifixion, but with the <laughs> but with the <laughs> the air traffic control signals. Um, oh, you can the, see the, him yeah. with the flares, yeah. With the flares, I, there's some really I think thoughtful physical acting where he's like he's having a lot of trouble waving him because the syringe is like still <laughs> in his chest. Could be it's good, yeah. Nick, be. Nick I mean, lives he for must that be shit. flying on cloud nine with all that adrenaline right into his lower <laughs> lower intestine. <laughs> oh, his gallbladder must be on fire. Uh, yeah, his pancreas is just like working overtime. Yeah, incredible. Um, Fight off that nerve gas. Absolutely. Um, I think that in terms of commitment to the bit, though. Cage is outcaged by Ed Harris in this movie. Have you seen the Ed Harris outtakes from this? No. You have got to go on YouTube and watch these. He is losing his mind. I mean, with just like method acting intensity when he's like giving the speech when, you know, they've, they've taken the island and he's like, we're all Marines and, you know, I'm sick of, you know, eating the toxic crap that the u.s government has shoved down my throat all these years and it's kind of like a three minute uninterrupted monologue um he ed harris is like when he flubs a line he's like fuck and he like bangs the the phone on the table as hard as he can and you could hear michael bay in the background being like yeah get like get matt no he's like get mad or like you're you know your guy on the phone you really want him like fuck that guy i want you to really be like fuck that guy and ed harris is like I get it. I get it. <laughs> he is losing. And then like someone's like messing with smoke off screen. And he's like, it's nothing personal, but Jesus, stop it. <laughs> it's awesome. God willing, within the next 48 hours, he will evacuate this island undercover. God damn it. I don't think it's an accident that you're like, let's talk out the moral compass of General Frank Hummel because the movie just invests a fuck ton in its third lead. You could honestly argue that, well, actually, it's not even an argument. He's the one with the character decisions to make. He's the one with the conflict. Right. Nicolas Cage and his whole, like, his girlfriend's pregnant subplot and then Connery with, uh, is he going to... uh, reconnect with what's her name um claire forlani as his as his daughter jade like those aren't as interesting i would say as not by yeah the hummel character you know i mean in 2021 he could simply publish a book with simon and schuster and get this all out into the world uh the Mm. public discourse around this would be deafening but alas he decides in a wikileaks world you don't have to take over alcatraz Twitter has definitely gotten rid of the nerve agent <laughs> attacks in our historically miscreated prison system. In my day, if you wanted to declassify information, you had to hijack Alcatraz. Yeah. In my day, when you wanted to score political points, you had to annihilate 20 million people <laughs> in a major metropolis using a, an unstoppable nerve agent. <laughs> In 2021, Threshold will give you $5 million to publish a book with them. I know we want to try and parse uh, the themes of the movie a little bit, 
But one of the things in the Michael Bay canon that I think makes this movie work is that, like, its would-be politics are kind of indecipherable, um, to me at least. Like, it's saying that the military-industrial complex is awful and that it's victimized people, but also, like, it's really cool. Like, the plane, like, right. it's awesome. <laughs> And there's like, every, you know, Hummel has this is teetering on the edge of like, where does ruthless honor become treachery? What is patriotism? But like, there's just some like, you know, more nakedly evil characters who didn't try to understand what he was doing. Uh, the FBI director is really evil, but like Stanley Goodspeed and William Forsyth are not like, I think it's just a, a lot easier to live in this kind of like mismatch of like movie villainy and like invented real world grievances than it is to deal with like bad boys which is in retrospect is just like kind of upsetting copaganda and like certainly like pearl harbor and 13 hours just like so so rah-rah black and white and this one like makes it a little weird in a way that i think is really palatable 25 years later Yes. Well, there is that kind of like weird Hollywood conservatism where it's like, yeah, we know like the system's kind of broken, but like people's morality always wins out in the end. And like the good guy always gets it, even if it's just by a hair. But it's what keeps things interesting, guys. So why change the system? Cage. There is some classic kind of Nick Cage flip outs. And I think in this movie... In this movie, it actually feels like he is compensating. It's like his his action stardom is peaking in a way, like right before Con Air and Face Off, that like the part in the movie can't really account for. And he's you know like we were making fun of in the IMDb synopsis, like it's like a mild mannered geek. Um, he looks very buff and does a lot of action stuff, and he's almost like. If my character's this confused, I had better just do the Nick Cage things where he yells like, how in the name of Zeus's butthole did you get out of your cell? Or um, after he gets Conray out of that kind of embarrassing situation with his daughter, he's like, cool it, a-hole. Like, there's no reason for him to be, like, you just never know when Cage is going to cage, man. He doesn't do that in Con Air. Why did he decide to do it here? Because the part wasn't written enough? I almost feel like this movie is an example of him kind of feeling like maybe this isn't a good movie. Because there's like a lot of worlds in which this is a bad movie. Right, Uh, true. But it almost feels like he's compensating for the fact that the movie's like not maybe that good or that original or whatever. And then what comes out is like, yeah, this sort of weird you know, pre-insane cage kind of acting that I fear like he got into his head of like, well, either I can do a good movie or I can do this and save a bad movie from being truly bad. And yeah. that latter path of least resistance uh, is the then the rest of his career. Yeah, I mean, I'm think, trying to think about like, in a lot of the other movies where he does that, there's some character reason, at least. Like in Matchstick Men, he's like horrible. Like his OCD is just eating him alive. Right. Um, in Face Off, like Caster Troy is a nutcase. 
But there's just no script reason why Stanley Goodspeed should talk or act like Nicolas Cage. Right. Yeah, he is supposed... I mean, in the script, it probably says a mild-mannered chemist. And, like, that's not what Nicolas Cage is playing. If anything, he's playing kind of like a Lothario slash, like, like savant. Audiophile. (laughs) Yeah. And then... Like that that weird like sex scene that he's having with Vanessa Marcel, bless her for being in this role. Oh my uh, god! Where yeah, he's like, they're like having sex on the roof in front of all these candles and lights, and then like his landline, which is sitting next to him, rings, and he's like, oh fuck, and he picks it up, and it's this assignment to team up with Nick, uh, with Sean Connery and save the world. Um, and then to jump to Connery. I think that it's kind of, it's interesting because I don't think Connery is actually doing that much in this movie that is interesting or we haven't seen him do before. He's just being a very steady presence. Really, it's just kind of a more dialed down version of Last Crusade and Untouchables um, and James Bond. I mean, he's good with the quip. He, he's still got those big shoulders. Um, he can do no wrong. I... If I had to ascribe his importance to the movie, though, I think it's probably in steering the ship in general. I think about, like, when you have Sean Connery in your movie, there is a certain amount of, like, Michael Bay tastelessness and trashiness that is just not allowed. Because if Sean Connery is going to be in your movie, like, it needs to have a level of charm. And Michael Bay is not a charming filmmaker at all. And but you you can read where Connery brought in his own screenwriters to like basically rewrite all of his lines and they contributed a lot more to everything else. And you can kind of just feel it in the end of the movie too. Like the epilogue just has some really supremely good vibes going on. And I'm just like, this is not how I feel at the end of most Michael Bay movies, where it's either like the cops fucking killed everything and that's cool, and or like honor was honorable. Um I think this movie's rather charming in the Michael Bay canon. Oh yeah, it's definitely the one of the most palatable uh, of the Michael Bay films. But back to your point about like where, because Connery's at this weird point in his career where he's about to do the Avengers, which is horrendous, uh, playing by heart Entrapment, which he gets like a little bit of like oh like older man kind of like sex appeal across from Catherine Zeta Jones. That's a decent movie. Uh, Finding Forrester, and then the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. So he's like somewhere between the old man strength James Bond and then just sort of like retirement. This, yeah, dashing white-haired retirement guy who like has a special set of skills. Yeah, it's a good it's a good look for him, and uh, I really think that the movie owes him a lot just for kind of just being there and being a steady presence when Nick Cage is doing whatever the hell he's doing, and we know that Michael Bay just like doesn't care about scripts and. Sean Connery does. He's been dependent on scripts making him look good for 45 years. Indeed. Um, and yeah. And then uh, the other thing I always forget about this movie is that like Ed Harris believes it to be the most important thing that he's ever worked on <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> I mean, he believes that about every one of his things he's in, which is incredible. We love that for him. It's a, it's also a nice, it's actually a nice twist of his persona. I mean, at this time, I mean, no, I think he had an Oscar nom for Pollock, but 
probably the right stuff is like his most famous, mm-hmm. like enviable American square jawed. Yeah, same thing there too. Like I think he's known for playing the um, abyss too. Oh, that's true. But yeah, he's known for playing like very steady um, American dudes who are in the right. And so it's nice to, it's an yeah, interesting it's nice. take on that. Well, without this movie, he never would have played the evil German sniper in Enemy at the Gates. I always forget that he's in that. Let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. Is, though, The Rock good good or is it bad good? Because it feels like we're talking about it like a bad good. Because it's silly. But I could watch this movie again and again. I think it's good good. Other than Cage acting out i think that this is a pretty miraculous convergence of things that like really shouldn't work and are very silly um but i think they're just hitting and yeah i think it's by far my favorite michael bay movie it's probably the strongest low bar oh i know i mean because i don't like i literally don't like any of the other ones but, but yeah, I have a soft spot for Pain and Gain, actually, because that movie's insane. Um, but I've never seen it. No, I think it's actually good. Good. I think that okay. I think at the end of the day, people talk about Michael Bay as a as a vulgar auteur. <laughs> um, but I think he's like a stylist, and this is a good example of like. If you can let other people, other movie stars with clout who can actually kind of take some of the auteur power away from him a little bit and then have against all odds a decent script cobbled together by six people, including maybe an uncredited rewrite by Tarantino, um, applying the Bayham to something like that just makes it watchable and gripping. You're talking about Armageddon, right? No. Armageddon also fucking sucks, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, no, I think it's a good good. I'm going to give it a bad good. Uh, I think it's like kind of a silly movie, uh, and it definitely like paves the way for like a lot worse things. So I kind of blame it for that. Uh, but you yeah, blame I mean, I this think movie the, for Armageddon and Pearl Harbor and Bad Boys too. I don't want to miss a thing um but i think all the playful things you're talking about are what make it very watchable but as Mm -hmm. like a constructed movie i mean it's stupid bad good what's so stupid about it the fact that they have to get the mall jewelry back before the (laughs) guy who's not crispin glover ends up killing everybody okay at the end that just feels like action movie bullshit to you that does there's a lot of like action movie bullshit okay i'm trying to think of a far-fetched wrap-up question noah if you were on an alcatraz escape crew what job do you feel like you'd be drawn toward um i feel like i'm pretty useful like for little missions 
So like if you needed me to like go retrieve, You're like the I'm the guy who, who gets asked for like the, the drill shop. bit. Yeah, exactly. I go pick up the drill bit and bring it back to you while you like have the master plan in your head. Okay. How about yourself? Yeah, kind of a song and dance man. I probably, uh, you know, go out in the yard. Attract people's attention by singing the show. Oh, you're more of a distraction. Yeah, and then I do not make it out. Interesting. That or I'm the one who makes the 70s soft rock references before I fire rockets into people's chests. I hate that soft shit. All right. Bid you adieu, sir. Great to see you as always, buddy. With his back against the San Francisco traffic on the bridge inside that faces towards the jail Setting out to join a demographic He hoists his first leg up over